Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before, and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Coming to you live on tape from the lucky 13th floor of a commercial high-rise in beautiful Beverly Hills adjacent California. From the studios of Sirius XM West, boasting an obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign, this is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, one of the most respected and prolific multi-hyphenates in Hollywood today, he is the executive producer of Unlovable, a film about the unlikely kinship between a sex addict and a recluse, and along with his brother Jay, the creator of the HBO anthology series Room 104, airing Friday nights on HBO. Hello and welcome, Mark Dupless. What's up, Mike Tully? Um everything and nothing at the yeah. same time it's exciting for me to meet you for many reasons um but uh, to be honest most of all because i very frequently hear from people on twitter that you are my celebrity doppelganger interesting yeah i'm gonna be totally honest i, I, I know think you are more deal, deal handsome. With the shock you are more handsome than i am i disagree with you strongly well your hairline is so much better you haven't uh, got you got grays yet i'm starting to they're they're yeah, I'm starting to get them on the I, side. I see very few. There aren't a lot. Underneath your eyes looks, I mean, pretty clean. Well, I don't work as hard as you do, I don't think. <laughs> okay. So I've got, I've got <laughs> okay. that going for That's me. That's fair. That's I'm now fair. jealous of- I've aged myself over the years. <laughs> You've I've been doing it. a lot. Yeah. So you've got, you got yeah. stuff to show for that. Um, speaking of age, uh, I read a quote from you that I found really interesting when you're doing press for uh, Blue Jay, which was a movie I was not totally familiar with, but I'm really planning on checking out now, having seen the the trailer for it, um, about how you are uh, consider yourself a nostalgic and melancholic person. That's true. And you recently-ish turned 40? Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm now 41. Oh, wow. Yeah. You and I, are, I think, are kind of similar. I went to a Jesuit high school you as did? well. You did? Yeah. Where? In New York. Oh, okay. I went to Regis High School. You went to... Yours is just called Jesuit High it's School. It's called Jesuit High School, but it was in New Orleans so mm-hmm. that, you know, we wore khaki uniforms. Oh, we didn't have uniforms because they used to have... Kids used to wear uniforms and then they got beat up on the subway. Yeah, that so makes th- sense. Then we just started keeping a low profile in um, <laughs> whatever they very, had that fall at the gap. That's a lot smarter. Yeah. <laughs> so what do you what do you mean by that? Because I think I relate to that, and I'm wondering if I'm thinking the same things. Turning forty, forty one, that you are about you know melancholy and nostalgia. Yeah, I think that my nostalgia and melancholy isn't just a product of the midlife uh, sad white male stuff. I think it's uh, it's been around forever. It's just a part of my DNA. Uh, I'm constantly looking backwards and thinking things were better back then than they probably actually were with rose-colored glasses. I do that sometimes looking forwards as well. Mm-hmm. I have an extremely difficult time living in the moment. Um, and, uh, you know, music of the mid-90s, like you put that stuff on for me and I kind of just start crying. And so I think that that's uh, – there's something there's something going on in there. And I haven't fully dug into it yet with my therapist, but we'll we'll get there. Okay. 
for some reason, I think you're better off than I am because I have that, those same feelings in regard to music from the early 80s. Mm. And I feel like it's a more manageable problem to work through Arrested <laughs> Development based at like right. 16 than 6. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> what, what were you waxing nostalgic for at 5 and 6 years old? I don't remember any of that stuff. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, obviously I didn't have that much perspective. I thought John, John Cougar Mellencamp was a talented musician. Yeah. I think that there is, the best I can figure is there is that real strong like life force that you feel mm-hmm. in touch with that limitless horizon everything yeah. is possible and this is where i thought we might be on the same page is i'm probably more fatalistic than i ought to be and certainly more than i wish to be but you get to 40 and you realize i've got a lot of the race left but mm-hmm. i'm aware of how far i am somewhere in the middle yeah. of the race and i think that there is something really appealing about that time when time and possibility seemed absolutely infinite. One hundred percent. the The best part about this conversation that you and I are having is that I think both of us legitimately think we're like talking about something kind of new and interesting. But basically, no. this is the classic yeah. midlife crisis scenario that everyone goes through, which is like, oh, half's done. Shit, what does that mean? Is that all? Is this? Is that what it is? Is this what we get? Is it going to be enough? The second half? Do I have to make some big changes for it to make it valuable? Um, maybe I'll just listen to some songs around the time when the sky was limitless. Yeah. Maybe that's better. I know it'll cheer me up. Eve 6. Yeah. That'll, <laughs> <laughs> that'll do it. So uh, I watched uh, the first episode of the new season of uh, Remo- 104. I, I really enjoyed it. Um, just for people who don't know, in a nutshell, how do you describe this series? So it's uh, an anthology series, which means that you know uh, each episode is self-contained. It's brand new stories, brand new characters. But they're all set in the same uh, sort of generic motel room um, that is a place we have all been. Um, and it was a way for me to really kind of have a television experience where you do not know what to expect when you show up. And that was important to me because I feel like, why why make another television show right now? We all have 500 shows on our queue. We're all stressed out about what we're missing out on. Um, so if I was going to do this, I wanted to offer something at least partially unique. Um, and, and the uniqueness for me in Room 104 is this could be a sci-fi episode. It could be a dramedy. It could be a comedy. It could be horror. It could be wild speculative fiction or surreal. And you literally won't know probably for the first five minutes where it's headed. And so that sort of Russian roulette wheel of the viewing experience felt like, oh, okay, that might be worth adding to someone else's queue. When do you know in like the germination process of any um, project that this has got legs, this is worth doing? Because if you're doing a screenplay, I can kind of see, well, once you do the beats, you know where you're going. But this, you're saying, I think interesting things happen in hotel rooms, but how can you know? And I know you're not personally writing every single episode, but how can you know it's four or 40 stories? Yeah, it's a really good question. I mean, obviously, the more experience you get, the more you sort sort of figure out what things have the amount of balls that can be kept in the air. Anthology, for sure, is just format-wise a really good thing because you can just reboot your story every episode you go. It's much harder in serialized television to figure that out. But the core of it for me with this show is that everybody is just a little bit different than they normally are in a hotel or motel room than they are at home. And I discovered that about myself. I'm not one of those people that goes crazy, but I do small things that are, like, a little off. Like, you know, I'll just, like throw my towel on the floor and just be like 
Well, you asshole. Somebody's got to pick that up. That's not very nice, but I kind of like doing it because it's like I'm never that inconsiderate at home. And like, you know, I'll, I'll <laughs> You're like a horrible man. I'll like wipe. I'll like a, I'll wipe a booger under the bed. Like I'll do weird shit. And I'm like, find myself like, why? Why is it? No one's watching. It's liberating. And it's really nice. And, yeah, and unless so, you're in that one motel where the guy was watching everybody. Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, he really had it figured out. He really that was quite did. a system. He I mean, really it was terrible it right. what he did, but we can all yeah. agree on that, but pretty yeah. impressive at the same time. So that, that to me felt like, okay, yeah, this thing has legs. And, and, you know, this is other thing that just kind of I didn't plan on, but it has really happened is that, like, it's a wildly collaborative show where I write the bulk of the episodes, but I don't direct very many of them. And I bring in all these new and young, hungry and interesting directors. And then I bring in all these people that I've been wanting to work with in front of the camera who I've been friends with for years, like like Rain Wilson and Mahershala Ali and Judy Greer and Michael Shannon. Like, we've all been like, we should work together, but we can't find eight to 12 weeks to make a movie or a whole serialized television show. But, you know, I can write them a role and say, let's make a one act play in a motel room it'll, it'll be two days to shoot it and that's really fun i remember hearing somewhere along the way that like the smaller the stakes in a story sometimes the bigger the drama can be and certainly we've all seen the universe saved enough times by marvel superheroes mm-hmm. to sort of demonstrate how the opposite is true but yeah. that sort of so the episode that i watched is um, just the premise is somebody's not invited to a party and finds out about the party mm-hmm. and it's it's absolutely gut-wrenching um, be, because of that does that did that figure into your decision making that you're you, ha- you have to make small stories you're in a motel I like making small stories dramatically they're just part of like you know who I am as a person I've led a like um, relatively privileged life that has been, thank God, bereft of like a uh, famine and genocide and starvation and all those things. So my dramatic bar tends to live in that zone anyway. Um, and then obviously you need stories that are going to rely on good propulsive story, good dialogue and great performances because there's just a couple of beds and a room in there. So you are dealing within the realm of basically what makes theater good, I think. Yep, right. Um, and so beyond that, when I'm trying to design stories like the FOMO episode that you just mentioned or an episode called Mr. Mulvihill that Rain Wilson stars in, um, that's just um, a sit down between uh, him and his former um, grammar school teacher. I mean, I think you really you you really want to design them for people who are going to be excited to do them. So my friend Jen LaFleur, who plays the lead in the FOMO episode, totally has FOMO and she knows it. And she's very, very charming person. And we just decided, let's dial this up and see if the FOMO went really wrong. Um, and I, and I, and I curated that role for her. Same thing with Rain Wilson. I wrote that for her. And, and for, there's an episode called Shark that comes later in the season, uh, that has Mahershala Ali in it. And I, and I designed him a very funny role to play because, Look, he won the Oscar for playing this incredibly dramatic, serious thing, but he's a very funny person, and people don't get to see that. So we kind of do a little bit of the designing things that bring out a new side to people as well. Okay, so that kind of leads to my next question. In general, how much of your writing is observing something in life or experiencing something in life and then um, adapting it to 
to go on the screen and how much is literally just, hey, it would be really interesting if a guy was born with four legs. Yeah, yeah it's a bit of both. You know, like I wrote an episode for my wife to star in um, that was really exciting because I wanted to give her something to do that she hadn't done before that was wildly different. And I didn't even know what the plotting was. I just created a character and I was like, oh, she's going to be making funny faces in the mirror. She thinks that she is an artificial being. She may or may not be. May it be funny if someone was like, interviewing her kind of like interview with a vampire style and then i just started writing you know those are really fun where you just kind of like let the person walk in the room and tell you what they want to do um but then again there are there are other episodes when you're making an anthology show it almost feels like you're making a record Mm -hmm. where you're like i have these three hit songs i got these five atmospheric pieces i got two mid tempos kind of need a ballad i I got yeah it's time for a ballad you know (laughs) and then you like slot one in you know yeah that's 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 super fun fun. this seems like it'd be a really fun thing it is so goddamn fun Fun. It's probably the most creative fun I've had. I mean, this and those like tiny little creep movies that I make with my friend Patrick, which uh-huh. are like, you know, we make them for 12 cents. Um, they're really a return to me the way I used to make stuff when I was a, a teenager, which mm-hmm. was nothing was watchable, but just like running around like an idiot with my friends, getting excited and trying things. And, and the reason I can do that, you know, and this is a little bit of inside baseball, but I think it's like important is like, um, I make things so dramatically cheaply comparative to what HBO normally spends on a show that that allows me the free reign to do what I want to do. They they look at me and they're like, all right, it's Friday night. We don't have to put billboards up all over town. Most people are going to watch this on HBO Go. Let's just go let Mark get his freak on, basically. <laughs> right, and which is cool. I guess the challenge, the pressure that comes with that is people all know, and if they don't, they probably have subconsciously noticed the movies that you see, the TV shows you see are, you know, reboots of things you're already familiar with. Yeah. The concepts you're already sold on. They're characters that you already know from mm-hmm. elsewhere or they're so high concept that you can explain them in a sentence. Yeah. It's very difficult for people to make the kind of career that you have, which is doing none of the above. What you bring to the table is your name. That really is it at this point. Selling it. I mean, enjoying it. Obviously, mm-hmm. you have to make a good product. It's great that you've got that, but you're operating on the high wire of you need to keep delivering for that name to continue to mean something. Yeah, and I think that, you know, what that delivery is, again, you know, I don't want to beat a dead horse, but by keeping my bar low from their financial commitment and for me taking care of myself, if you're a creator and you're coming up and you're trying to figure out how to do this stuff, my advice is always like, you need to find a way to make yourself indispensable doing what you do, you know, and. Uh, my, I have such a great relationship with HBO. They know all this. They tell you the same thing. Like they got to go chase the next Game of Thrones. They can't be worried about Room 104. They need someone who can take care of that. I'm almost like a little like I'm almost like Sub Pop, the little label that's attached to big HBO, making yeah. them stuff that will be well reviewed, that viewers will show up for and like. They also look at Room 104 as kind of this like talent breeding ground where I'm bringing them constantly like new actors and new directors and they're hiring people from the Room 104 world of talent that I'm scouting at places like Sundance and stuff like that so I've just found a way to just be like hey man I'm like uh, a mere fraction of the cost of uh, Game of Thrones catering budget on a Monday Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, (laughs) so um, I'll be valuable over here and you let me do my thing and they're happy to do it yeah we're cheaper than one giant yeah um, uh, pivoting a little bit to the film Unlovable, yeah. uh, what does an executive producer do? 
Well, it's different for movies than it is for TV. You know, uh, on television, they're really heavily involved usually. Um, but on, on movies, they can be um, as not involved as I just put up the money so that I can look cool and take a picture with you at Sundance. Um, or you can be, you know, more creatively involved in the building of the film, putting together the team, blah, 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 you know. What I do as an executive producer uh, for a movie like Unlovable is I'm really into like this like team building thing um, where I'm heavy at the front of a movie and I'm heavy at the end of the movie. And so Charlene de Guzman is the writer and the star of this. And she's a really funny comedian. She's had this funny Twitter account for a while. She's had a couple of like you know, short form videos that kind of blew up a few years ago, but hasn't really like found her traction. And she is also someone who's dealt with sex and love addiction for years, which I didn't know that much about. Honestly, I knew a lot about sex addiction, but differentiating it into sex and love addiction and what that is, which is actually in some ways much more difficult because it's harder to maintain sort of healthy, sustained romantic relationships with that. Um, and so I met her on Twitter and we started talking about how to make a story about this. And, and, um, I said, look, let's, let me help you build a movie. She hadn't written a movie. I was like, I'll help you structure it. I know how to write and structure movies. Um, and then we'll go start a Kickstarter campaign and whatever you raise in Kickstarter, I'll personally match it. And we'll go make a movie for like, you know, a hundred thousand dollars or something, you know, which is something I'd known how to do. I've done for years. Yeah. And then it really just kind of snowballed due to her talent, due to her charm. And Melissa Leo came on board, you know, and John Hawks came on board. And then he ended up writing all the music for the movie. And it was just this wonderful experience that doesn't always happen where people really rallied around Charlene, you know, to make this thing happen for her. And the movie just, it's hard and it's it's dark and it's subject matter, but it's incredibly hopeful and incredibly sweet because she now is on the other side of it and is doing really well. So. Yeah. It was really, it was a really cool one for us. It, that's like a that seems that reminds me of when people talk about food addiction. It's like yeah. you you can stop drinking cold turkey, you can't stop eating cold turkey, you can't stop hopefully loving. That's exactly cold it. turkey. That's yep. the challenge there. Um, I had a question about the trailer. I, I apologize if this is uh, critical. Um, I notice with a lot of smaller movies, I get halfway through the trailer and I'm like, oh, this is really good. I'd really like to see this. And yeah. then the trailer kind of keeps going. And I'm like, I kind of feel like this might be late second act, third act stuff. That right. I'm, do, is it? There are so many projects. There's yeah. so many movies. Do you ever feel like you have to reveal too much of the movie to get people to watch the movie? So I have a very specific thought on marketing. For my first few projects, I was heavily involved in the marketing with the trailer and the poster because I really thought I knew best. Um, and, and I realized that I kind of don't know best, and and the truth is actually nobody knows anything um, about what's going to work. The marketing departments can take their guesses. They are more educated than I am, but even they are swinging wildly in the dark. Um, now, here's the bummer about spoilers. When you're dealing with um, a small movie, normally what has happened is that someone has taken a big risk on that financially. Okay, And a lot of times they have to make an even larger than big old financial risk when it's one of my movies because my name is attached to it and I'm bullying them to give me a lot of money so I can give it to my creators. So now I've made them a promise to go and do what you need to do to make your money back. Okay, And I'm not going to severely hamstring you. And so I try to be fair when it comes down to that conversation of marketing. And they say, dude, I get that there's some spoilery stuff, you know, but 
I'm telling you from my data, when I put this thing up on iTunes, when I put this thing up on Amazon, and it has the ability to show some of the second act stuff, we're going to get twice as many people to see the movie. Right. It's just a, a nature of what this is. If you had one of the top five movie stars in your movie, I wouldn't have to spoil anything because they're already coming. But I need to drag people into it. And so I'm like... You paid us really well for the movie. You paid Charlene out and you took care of her. Yep. You're getting behind an independent film, which is probably going to lose you money. You you deserve that. You do what you have to do. Yeah. And, it, and it is, as they say, entertainment is the intersection of art and commerce. And like I always feel like I happened to see, it was a very cold night, really windy night in New York, the Friday night that Sixth Sense came out. Yeah. And we were like, what is playing next? And oh. I went in cold. You're so lucky. I know. I mean, I went in cold in multiple ways. Yeah. No fucking idea isn't that awesome and now i see things and they say you'll never believe the twist at the end of blah 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 yeah. and they're not spoiling the twist in any way they're just letting but, you know that but, there's a big but twist they coming. have put you in a position where you know there's a twist and you're viewing it 100 percent differently exactly and the, as i say art and commerce the marketing department when they know the strength of this movie is that there's a twist to let a movie come and go and have nobody see it to preserve the artistic vision what does that accomplish it's tough i totally get it and you know look the intersection of art and commerce for me has been how i've learned how to stay alive at first i thought i need to understand the devil so that i can operate correctly and then i started to realize like it's actually in some cases, at least in my ecosystem, which is generally a, a nice people ecosystem, the people who are making the kinds of stuff I want to make are normally not all about making money, right? Um, in general, I've realized that actually like by backing into financial models that work for certain pieces of content, you are also, you're not only um, understanding how they can get made, you are supporting your ability to get those things made. And Room 104 is the perfect example of that. By by me saying, if I had gone out and been like, give me the same budget you gave me to make Togetherness uh, to make Room 104, I never would have gotten this show made. But by making it significantly more cheaply, I'm supporting my ability to do it creatively how I want to do it. And so I, I really am always encouraging young filmmakers and people to just be like, don't do what I did through my 20s and be a snob and think that like to understand the money side of this means you're selling out. Do it and learn it and back into it and you, ultimately you'll be able to build something stronger. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We all had that headstrong. Yeah, Maybe we're exactly. all just a bunch of sellouts. Now I'm selling out and justifying it to you because yeah. we're both in our 40s. I, I, maybe that's what's going on. It doesn't, in my gut, it doesn't feel that People way. People are laughing their asses off at us right now. I know. Your I, audience is just like, they're so cute. They, I never said it was, I never said this was a unique issue yeah. <laughs> that I had. Yeah, I never, I never no. ever claimed that. But no. uh, um, what did you do on Skeleton Twins? I love that movie. So Craig Johnson is a really close friend of mine i made his first movie with him this movie called uh, true adolescence that we made for like no money years ago and he brought me the script for it and i was like man this is incredible and he's like i'm not a duplass so i can't get this made will you help me get this made and it was great because an executive producer in that case is a perfect example of me not having to do that much. Yeah. Help connect him to some movie stars who might want to be in it. Help connect him to some financiers who could see the talent that was already there. You know, And then he went and made the movie on his own. And then I helped him in the edit room to kind of like finesse it and make it a little bit better. Helped him get to Sundance and sell it because I know how to do that stuff. But that is the best version of executive producing for me right now, which is like... 
I kind of have been in this business now for like 15 years and I got the gray hair to show it. And there are a lot of younger filmmakers who I identify with who are coming in and I have a little bit of that survivor's guilt and I'm just like, ooh, I can guide you through these like three to four really rough patches that I went through and save you some severe pain and therapy. Um, and so we do a lot of that stuff. That's cool. I kind of have this theory that in entertainment, in any given field, like 10% were going to make it absolutely no matter what. Just yes. so much talent, talent couldn't be stopped. 10% are completely lucky, Have bring nothing to the table and yeah. just somehow got there. <laughs> yeah. But then the middle 80% is the difference between somebody who is a genius and somebody who is utterly unknown might really have been a break. It's pretty precarious. I, I feel like, particularly with this business where you're in a major market, it's very expensive to live there. Sometimes you only have six months to either make it or not. Um, you know, it, it definitely feels like one or two little boosts can make a big difference at times. So, I don't know. I mean, it's not like we're like saving the world over here, but like that stuff makes me feel good. And I actually really like working with younger filmmakers because they kind of like they juice me up. I get like a little stuck in my ways and yeah, right. they show me new things. So it's a cool little, it's a double benefit. Thank you so much for your time. It's been a real pleasure uh, getting to meet you. Awesome, man. Thanks for having me. The uh, film Unlovable is streaming now wherever movies are streaming and Room 104 airs Friday nights on HBO. Thank you, Mark Duplass. Awesome. Thanks, man. We are back on The Tully Show with my second multi-hyphenate guest of the week. I just spoke to Mark Duplass, co-creator of the HBO series Room 104, now a comedian, an actor, a TV host, and a valued member of the Sirius XM family. His stand-up special, Blasian, is available for pre-order now on iTunes. Hello and welcome, Michael. Yo! Yo! What's going on, man? Thanks for coming in. Uh, you are uh, a friendly face around the office. You're, yes. you're a beacon of positivity. Oh, I try. You got to be, man, especially in our uh, office over here because it's so it's just it's just not a bright place. It's, you know what I mean? It feels like a dentist office. It does. You go to New York and it's serious. You're like, whoa, this is awesome. You come here and it's just like, wah, wah. where's the tongue depressors? It, exactly. But we're trying to make the best we can. Out well, of you're it. you are. You are, like I said, you're the beacon of positivity around here, but I don't actually know you, and I figured what better way to get to know you than with an awkward on-air no, no, conversation. No, I, I, I think we get it out in the open. You know, all <laughs> our issues, let's do it. So you, from what I can tell, might be the busiest person that I know. Well, okay, okay. Yeah, I, I'm busy. I'm busy. I got two radio shows, of Yeah, can you, can you list the jobs you have? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Michael Yo Show on Sirius XM. On, on EW, EW Radio right? from 11 to 1, and then Hits 1 in Hollywood on the Hits 1 station right? Uh, from 4 to 7 in the afternoon. Then stand-up, uh, I go around doing stand-up at night. Uh, tonight I'll be at the Improv. How many and nights a week are you talking I about? I go up three to four times a week. Good for you. And Yeah, Laugh Factory Improv and Comedy Store. And then um, touring and the Bravo play-by-play show. And I just got a show picked up uh, developing for Fox that I'm writing right now with Nick Adams. Okay. Well, congratulations on that. I see Thank that you. name a lot. Did he, is he have something to do with the Nick Kroll show? No. Nick Adams, he wrote the first... Uh, he wrote New Girl. He was a writer on New Girl. Okay. And he write, he's actually writing BoJack right now as well. Okay. I feel like I've seen that name in credits. Oh, There's yeah. so many goddamn shows now. I know, right? Oh, it's too many. It's too many. Far too many. Well, congratulations on adding years to the pile. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but you don't you don't pod anymore, podcast? No, I used to podcast with a guy named Joe Coy. Right. He's yeah, like, we know Joe, sure. Oh, yeah. He's my mentor in comedy, and we did this thing called the Yo Joe Show. But then we just got on different schedules. You yeah. know, he blew up. 
I was working all the time. He's touring all the time. So now he does his own thing. And with Sirius XM, I just, I just, this is my radio. This is my fun. This is how I get to invite all the guests I want on. So it works as my podcast on air. Five, six hours a day. I think that's more than adequate. Yeah, right. I'm good. I'm good. So let's talk. I want to talk about your jobs. Um, the, the EW show. What, what's going on there? What is your, what's your entertainment shit? What I call it, I call it like celebrities, pop culture and comedy. A uh-huh. lot of comedians come by. I've had everybody from Chris D'Elia, Joe Coy. Mm-hmm. I've had, uh, Burt Kreischer in. Yes. Uh, but then we do like the, the big actors like Anthony. Anderson is coming in today. We've had, uh, I mean, uh, Summer Hayek. Uh, really? Yeah. She's been in here? Oh, yeah. She's been in here. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know. Are you, are you not getting that email? <laughs> I, guess, I guess the problem Maybe. is I'm not reading them. <laughs> <laughs> but what are you into? Like, what is your stuff in entertainment? What oh, are, I, I yeah. love This Is Us. That's my jam. I talk about This Is Us. You know, I have to. What is that? That's like NBC. Oh, right? my God. Are you serious? I'm, you, I totally. cannot possibly you be more seri- chucked out. Are you serious? You Tell do- me your top 10 TV shows at the moment, and I, will not know it, and I will not know what any of them are. Oh, come on. House of Cards. My wife watches that. You've never seen House of Cards with Kevin Spacey. I know it's bad now to say that name, but you never. He's so a what, terrific. He's a terrific actor. I don't think okay. anybody's debating that. Okay, that my wife has said is so good that she would go back and watch it with me, and I've expressed my openness to that. Okay, but it, it hasn't happened yet. This is a, so. So I guess the question is, what are you into? What TV show are you watching right now? I actually am watching a current TV show because usually it? the answer is I'm watching reruns of Doctor Doctor on YouTube. Okay. <laughs> okay, I've never heard of that show. You don't remember that from when we were children? Matt no. Frewer, Mac, uh, Max Headroom. He oh. was the guy who was Max Headroom. Oh, I'm Max. But yeah, okay. But he had, Max a, te- he had a really bad television. But was Max Headroom in the show? No, he was like the human, av- the human being that they turned into Max Headroom. Uh. But he actually was in real life. A human being. Never heard of it. <laughs> never heard of it. I know Max Hedrum, but yeah. I never heard of the show. We're the same age. Where'd you grow up? Uh, Houston, Texas. Yeah, you had network television there. <laughs> <laughs> but see, I think because I was growing up, you know, I was supporting the uh, black comedies and oh. black TV shows. Like, I watched A Different World, Cosby Show. I watched show. A Different World. I watched, yeah. Uh, I watched, uh, like, What's Happening. I watched uh, sure. Fat Albert. You know, I watched programs like that because I was confused. I lived in an all-white neighborhood, so I was like, well, I am black, so let me support these shows. You know, so I would watch all those shows. I was magnanimous of you. I Thank you. <laughs> and I never watched Friends. Like, I've never seen Friends. You didn't miss much. I've never seen uh, Seinfeld. I've never seen Cars with Comedians or, or Comedians in Cars with Seinfeld. Not that nor, that's an old show. Nor have I. Okay, okay. So, but you, pro- you look like a Friends guy. Wow! Every you week, know what? That's... every week, I guarantee you, you watch Friends. Do you know what's insulting about that to me is that <laughs> is that you never would have said that to me when Friends was on the air because I didn't look like a Friends guy there. Oh, okay. But I'm looking. At I'm you all now. grown up now, and fuck, I do look like a guy you who used to look watch like, Friends. Like, like that would be the first thing if oh, somebody God. met you, they would go, "What TV show does tell you? Oh, well, Friends. It looks Son like a, a Friends bitch. guy." Actually, a very solid sitcom. Believe it or not, that's that's the most depressing thing about it is you want to hate it and you watch it and you're like, it's solid. Fuck, it's a it's a solid. Show. And See, of course, Seinfeld's a good show. Like I I've just never watched it mm-hmm. on purpose because I've I, principles. I, no, I feel like I have a connection with Jennifer Aniston because I've never because I've interviewed her several times mm-hmm. and I've never brought up Friends once and I think that's why she likes me. Well, oh, yeah, in, hell yeah. As, yeah, I've never brought it because I've never seen it. Mm-hmm. And I think she likes that I've never seen it. Yeah, the better thing would be if you could somehow convince her you'd never heard of Friends. I've heard of it. <laughs> but, but but you know, I know her name was Rachel. And it was the haircut. Is that the haircut? You're right. Rachel and Monica. 
Monica was the was other one. Uh, Courtney Cox. Courtney Cox, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, right. Um, I'm watching one current show, which I just mentioned, uh, the uh, Big Mouth on Netflix. Big Mouth. What is that about? There's so many shows on Netflix. It's too many. Now. Is it? Is it? I mean, really, does anybody in the meetings there ever hold up their hand and say, I understand we're trying to take over television, but if we make more TV shows than people can even be aware of, we're just throwing money out the door? No, I don't think they see it that way. I think they go, look, we need to own all our programming. Let's just make a bunch of TV. Like, TV's been on for, uh, what? How long do you think TV's been on? Since the 30s, 20s? I think it was a little bit later than that. I feel very dumb. I feel like I'm supposed to have a ready answer. All right, so let's, we're going on 100 years of television. Let's say 100 years. Yeah. Ago. We're going to make 100 years of television in three years right. so we can catch up, and then we're going to chill out. <laughs> I think that's what Netflix is doing because they want to own they, they, You're telling me Netflix is going to Netflix and chill. Yes, they are. I think they're going to get to a point where like, okay, we're good. We yeah, can meet our, maybe. But, because now it's to a point where Big Mouth, I've never heard of it. I'm sure other people have. No, somebody had to tell me about it. And then when I said, oh, I'm watching Big Mouth, people are like, oh, yeah, season three is like pretty good. huh?" I'm like, I just started this. See, it's very funny it's, and it's really uncomfortable. You're a parent, right? Yes. How old? My son's 20 months. Oh, okay. You're just getting started. So you're not into the... It's awkward. I have a a, a three, four month old and like an almost seven year old. Big Mouth is all about kids hitting puberty and it's uh. very, very frank about their sexuality. And on the one hand, you're like, oh, this is like, um, this is good. We all went through this. This is exactly the sort of stuff that we did and thought about. But on the other hand, it's frank depictions of like 11 year olds kind of having sex. Oh my goodness, And really? you're kind of surprised that they can put it on TV, and I don't think they would have, but for the fact that Netflix makes so many goddamn TV shows, nobody even knows they did it. And you're, you and that guy that told you about season three are probably the only two people in the world that watch that show. You know, you think that, and then I was in Little Tokyo this weekend, and they had the, you know, those ridiculous pophead novelty toys? Yes. They had popheads of the two main characters. Really? That is weird. That's another company that's making unless more shit than they a, have to. Unless, unless there's a bunch of creepy people that just want to watch 11-year-olds have sex. Have you ever thought about that? Do you know what's weird? Do you want to, <laughs> do you want to, get, do you want to get really weird yeah, here? Yeah, when, you, weird. when you watch TV with your wife, and then you turn it off, and then it's like time to have sex, and you're like, we almost can't because you can't. You know what? You're okay. thinking of 11-year-olds when you're about you know, to have okay, sex? Is that what you're saying? Let me put it this way. This is making a way big left turn here. Many people... <laughs> Many people would probably be happy to admit that they had Game of Thrones sex. Oh, yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. So what you watch on TV can carry over. And when you're watching a show that's just relentlessly about, should we fuck? Should we fuck? You're going to grab her tits. And there's like hormone monsters that are like, dude, totally watch your parents make out. And, yeah. you're, and you're like, I like, I think we need to take a sabbatical from sexuality after the show. Maybe we should start having sex before we Netflix. Wait, yes. Okay. I'm going to change the subject. You're yeah. also on... <laughs> You're also on Hits 1 as a you're a 43-year-old man? Yes. What's your, so what's your pop music at the moment? Oh my what's your jam? You know what? I I'm going to sound old when I say this, but I'm not into a lot of it anymore. No, that's the right answer. Because I think it all sounds the same. Mm-hmm. Like I feel like top 40 music today, uh you can manufacture a girl slider into any song and they all sound the same. Literally I mean, they do. I'm not going to call out a specific name, but you turn on a Top 40 station, they all sound the same. I, I think there are artists that stand out, like Khalid. You know, I think, um, you know, everybody jumps on the um, the rapper, uh, see, I even forgot his name, uh, Kendrick Lamar. But yes. I'm not a big fan of Kendrick Lamar. You know, I I I'm, I, I like what Donald Glover's doing. Mm-hmm, you agreed. know, I, I, I like that type of stuff. 
Kanye, no matter what you say about him, I think when he comes out with a great song, it's a great song. It's always interesting. I, I'm upset because I, when I first got into radio, it was all about alternative rock, Stone Temple Pilots, Bush. Uh, and that was those, your stuff? That was my stuff. Okay. Girl, like, that's the first radio show uh, I did. My first song was Interstate Love Song by STP. Fucking weird. That was on the radio when I turned the radio on this morning. Really? It's Small a world. sign. It's a sign. Maybe. But I loved alternative rock and it's sad it's not around anymore and nobody can really live up to that. So that's just disappeared from the face of the earth but i like rap i like pop there's nobody i would oh the only person i'd go see bruno mars love freaking bruno mars i've heard that a friend of mine love said, yeah he saw he said he saw him with um brian cullen from sirius xm said he saw him with mccartney and he blew mccartney off the stage blew him off and what's sad is no matter who he's on stage with he's the only person that could go after Beyonce and you still be like, oh my God, he's amazing. Yeah. Well, it's hard to fuck with a guy who looks like James Brown singing uh, Sting songs. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. I mean, the <laughs> he's, guy, got, he's got everything. If I could come back but be a little taller than Bruno Mars, I would <laughs> want to be Bruno Mars. If he could have like four or five more inches, yeah, be great. But I'm telling you, he's the new Michael Jackson. Uh, well, yeah, but for the fact that he doesn't have an individual unique sound or songs that are going to stand the test of time like Michael Jackson's. Oh, yeah, do. he will. You think so? 100%. 100%. Okay. Half the songs he makes are going to stand the test of time. Okay, uh, maybe I'll retract the second part of that, but Michael Jackson brought something new to the table. Can I, we say that Bruno Mars is bringing anything new to the table? Can we say, how many, I, how many I pop think artists? Bringing, are- I think he's bringing something new today mm-hmm. to the table, but if he was out when Jackson and all those people that performed, yeah. he, would be, uh, he would be great, but he would be like those people. Now people don't perform. You yes. got to understand. If you, have you ever been to a Bruno Mars show? I have not. Okay, so you have... If you go, you'll understand what I'm saying. Like, I believe you. I totally it's a believe performance you. Performance. Yeah, yeah, the whole yeah. Thing. My parents see him on TV and tell me he's great. Nine years. <laughs> I swear. <laughs> nine year old kids there till to eighty year old people. Yeah, it's awesome. It's awesome. I'm I'm telling you, the best artist out there. By no, far. I'm not. I'm shitting on his music and I'm shitting on how derivative he is, but I'm not shitting on his talent or his. Why work do you ethic. shit on this music? You don't like it. I just didn't like that one that came out. That was a that was a, 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 a that was a Prince song. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh okay. yeah, yeah. Okay. I don't. I, I don't. I don't have a real bone to pick with with Bruno Mars. So you've been in pop music for yeah. a while. You're oh my god, since I started, 18 years old. But pop music mm-hmm. has changed. Yeah, like, that's pop what music I want to ask. Didn't you have rap music on it when I started. That is correct. I remember the first rap song, and it was so controversial. And they had meetings about playing it. Was a Will Smith song. Like so, parents just don't understand. Some it was that, or it wasn't jiggy with it. It was it was a pop song. Yeah, it might have been parents just don't understand or one of those songs. But it like was a big deal. We're about to put a rap song in between Stone Temple Pilots. Like it was a it was meetings after meetings. Is this right? Do our it was kind of like MTV back in the old days. Should we yeah. play a rap song? Right. Should it should it break format or do we just put all that? Do we segregate it? Just put it in a show? Is it all Fab Five Freddy or does it right? get to leak in? <laughs> exactly. exactly. <laughs> so we had those meetings and Will Smith was the first rap song at a radio station I ever played. And that and uh-huh. that blows my mind how light Will Smith is. Yeah, I know. And it was that much controversy. It was just what it represented was these guys aren't making music. They're just talking exactly. over somebody else's music. Exactly. There's still one radio station that's a pop station that refuses to play hip hop. It's the uh it's the one at the Ralph's grocery stores. I've heard I've heard <laughs> Ralph's <laughs> Which Ralph's? They're uh, all on the same system though. No, they're not. They're not. You know why? Because so Ralph's is our big grocery store chain out here in Los Angeles. Do you go to a racist Ralph's? Is that what you're saying, Tom? Yeah, I go to a Ralph's that plays it real safe and it's the one right up <laughs> it's the one right up the road. I wish I could remember what the hell was it? There's a song that I a know. Wilshire? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, oh. over on Hauser, just walking distance from here. I'll never go there. 
Oh, it's the best Ralphs. But uh, <laughs> except for the fact that, I, God, I wish I could remember the song. There's a song that I know had um, like a rap verse in place of like a guitar solo or something. Okay. And, they, and it was like from the 80s and they played a different version of it. And I was, was like, it Walk This Way? No, 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 no. It was just, it was a song like, God, I, I want to say like an Opposites Attract. Maybe it was Opposites Attract and they took out. The okay. bit with nothing in common, but you yeah, know, like the DJ uh-huh. Scat Cat. Yeah. Was, they actually played a version that didn't have oh my God. the rap in it. But meanwhile, there's the the Ralphs down by the by the airport by Pans, the, yeah. the Pulp Fiction. It's all diner. rap music. No, it's it's like smooth jazz. It's fucking terrific there. Oh, I see. I like jazz music. I do too. I yeah. like I like the Ralphs. They play it. I mean, the jazz they play at Ralphs. Okay, so can we say that's Pandora, probably? Um, most likely, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Right. Or music, actually, I think. Is still, or music. Believe okay. it or not, mu- the music company is not really making music anymore, but they're music and the shit out of everybody. Oh, look at that. Um, as a parent, do you feel comfortable with the content of, like, the mindset of where pop music is being something that your kid would just be having as part of their world in the not-too-distant future? <sighs> uh, yeah. Because I think it's half the rap you don't understand, so it's just beats now. Mm-hmm. So it's not like when I was growing up, you had NWA, to, and they talked about what they saw in the streets. I think now it's about popping bottles and girls and all that stuff. So it, 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 you're not reaching the social injustices in it, but half the rappers you don't understand, so you're not getting a message from it anyway. Yeah. As far as the singers, it's all sex. It it's really all, is. but it all, it always has been. Even with, uh, Paul Abdul back in the day, skimpy outfits, it hasn't changed. It's just sexed up a little bit more, but it's, they were selling sex. Yeah. Marvin Gaye made sexual healing. Yeah, sexual healing. It, it's all about sex. So that hasn't changed. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's more in your face. So as a, as a parent, he's listening to Moana right now, the soundtrack. You know, he loves that song's Mo- not bad. No, it's not. I It's not a bad song. Yeah. Oh, it's great. Mm-hmm. It's great. So we listened to the whole soundtrack <laughs> this morning. So he's not there yet. Right. But I feel that probably in like another year, he's going to be learning top 40 music. Yeah. And singing. But he, I, hopefully he'll know how garbage it is. <laughs> Maybe. You know what's funny is my- I do like Imagine Dragons, though. They make great music, even though they're in their nice guys. Maybe I'm saying that because they're nice guys too, but they make catchy tunes. It sounds good at the yeah. at, It sounds good at the football game. <laughs> <laughs> Tully's Jade. What type of music do you like? Well, you the like funny Michael Bublé. I do not like Michael Bublé. Now I may look like a Friends viewer, but I do not look like a Bublé listener. Okay, do I look like a Bublé listener? Kinda. Oh, because I love Michael Bublé. I, I love Michael I think Bublé. date night with you and your wife has got a lot of Bublé. It's oh a, I think it's bubbly and Bublé for you two. First row, Bublé, <laughs> and we met him backstage. It was the best moment of my life. Well, the weird thing is that my kid, because when I was growing up, you just had to listen to what was on the radio. My mom uh, was a little bit older, but she just like wanted to feel young and feel cool. So we listened to Z100 in New York. Oh, yeah. And I was obsessed with all of the pop music that came out. It's a decent time to be a kid, early 80s kind of stuff. Well, now we can listen to whatever the hell we want, and I'll be damned if I'm going to let a six-year-old tell me what I'm listening to in my car. So we listen to the pop music that came out in the early 80s. So, oh, so you're listening to the 80s channel? Uh, Yeah, a lot of... what You know, I listen to the... I love they do the the Top 40 Countdown every, yeah. every weekend with the VJs. Yeah. I, I like Because you can listen to it on demand. So I just... Over the course of a week, we'll listen to the whole thing. I really, really enjoy. So that. you're you're brainwashing your kid to like old school '80s music. It wasn't something that I did on purpose. I don't 
I'm not that guy. He can be into. I mean, I'll laugh at him if he gets super into like EDM or whatever. But <laughs> but it's I'll laugh at him if he gets into emo. But it's his life. You yeah. know what I mean? If he wants to just hang out in K Town and get bottle service, it's his. <laughs> I'm not going to stop. I'll just hey, laugh. don't hate on K-Town. I'm half Korean. Come on, tell I'm, me. My wife's Japanese. Oh, I love it. He's half Japanese. We'll talk about that. But uh, but I realized that I didn't do it on purpose, but my kid is going to be nostalgic for the exact same music from childhood that I am. I like that. It's... Fucking Tarzan Boy by Baltimore came on, and he's like, I know this. And I'm like, what was it like in a movie? He's like, no, like you just, I've, I've, I've heard. I have no idea what that song is. Tarzan Boy? Oh, yeah. See, I know the songs. I don't know the name. That's like a song in his world. <laughs> that is hilarious. <laughs> I love that. I'm, you know what? I'm going to start doing that to my kid. Just play it's 90s. Fun. Yeah. It's it, super fun. My kid will be blame it on the rain. Millie Vanilli had a couple songs. Dude. Girl, I'm going to miss you is actually kind of legitimate. I'm telling you. Yeah. I, I, I mean, play, uh, the Millie Vanilli and then um, uh, PM Don. Come on now. Stop it. We were playing them on the Ellis show the oh, other day. Oh, PM Don is the shit. That's one of the few uh, positive bliss, things memory that ever, bliss. ever came out of Hoboken. They were out of Hoboken? If I'm not mistaken, they were out oh of Hoboken, New Jersey. I know, it was kind of hard to place, what with the Moomoos and everything. They just but... took the path over the city. They were all good. Yeah, that's exactly. That's precisely. They were, a, they were definitely a, a path band. Yeah, they were. <laughs> so you were down at Y100 in Miami. I think um, I may have even written your name into some scripts. Um, years ago, I wrote a syndicated show that Carson Daly did that was carried on Y100. Yes. And I think we, I wrote stuff for Carson oh, Daly okay. throwing you, so small world. Is it true that you were involved with the um, Kardashian sisters having a radio show? Yes, Chloe Kardashian, Chloe After Dark. Okay, would you describe them as radio naturals? I would describe Chloe as a great uh, person on the radio to talk about sex. Really? That that's what the show was. It was called Chloe After Dark, and uh-huh. literally, listeners would call from eleven to one a.m. to call to talk to her all over the world. And oh, ask her that. sex questions, and it how, was and she was great. How raw are we getting here? Uh, I mean, pretty raw, pretty uh, as raw as you can get for radio yeah. on top. But we did it after eleven because you have more leeway with the FCC. So she was great at hosting that show, and of course, I was on there to kind of lead the way. But she would like when they ask a question, she will go there. Like I always think, Chloe, it would be great as a co-host on something. You know, like just because she has a strong opinion mm-hmm. and she really comes out it, and I and I know everybody says, well, they're not talented, but there's a talent to get people to watch your damn TV show every single week. Oh, I've said that a million times. There's there's a talent to yeah. There's a there's a million people who tried to be them and they're them. And and there's a I, skill there. Here's here's the reason why I say that so openly. A lot of people listen to radio and go, oh, I can do that. Oh, really? You could talk for two hours? Oh, yeah, no problem. And then you hear celebrities think that until they get their own radio show, and then it's like, oh, my God, I don't know what I'm doing. How do I stretch for another 15 minutes to talk? I've said everything i got to say. So people look at our jobs and go, that's easy. They're just talking. Yeah. The only problem with that is, see, okay, you're in the same boat as me. I do, I do a little bit of stand-up, not much as, as much as you do. And I was... I, there are some people out there who, you know, are old school about stand up. We know this, and I understand that, who are like, you're not a stand up comic. You're just a guy who decided to, I can tell jokes. You know, you're a YouTube celebrity, or you're a guy with a TV show, or you're a radio guy. Oh, now you do stand up. Most of the big guys and girls have been so, so nice and so supportive to Absolutely. me. Absolutely. But I've heard murmurs, not about me, but about the thing in general. Of and, course. And all I ever say to that is, None of us radio guys said shit when you guys all got podcasts three years ago. 
No, not at all. You but, know, but if but, you can do it, you can do it. And the podcast thing does sort of show that radio is no. This is not something just anybody can do, but it turns out a lot more people could do it than the industry recognized. Well, a lot more people can do it on their terms. Good point. And doing and not having rules to. I mean, come on, we work for Sirius XM. Like, there's certain. Oh, you have rules. Uh, well, uh, how's, how's that going? Well, that going? No, 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 no. <laughs> like, we take it. We could take it to a certain extreme, but you know, it, it's it's very. I don't know. Like, podcasts are good, and it shows how relevant radio is, and people like to hear. Uh, you like if people love you, they love your show. But I don't even think I think the thing is I heard murmurs too when I first got in, and I've only been doing stand up nine years. Uh, stand up was very you stand on the stage, no emotion, and you just tell jokes. But my mentor is Joe Coy, mm-hmm. and he was going, "Who's telling you that?" And I was go, "It's this guy, this guy." He goes, "Those guys don't even tour." He's like, "Stand up is what you make stand up," and he right. was always believed in this because Joe Coy. Five, six years ago would sing at the end of a show, like play a bunch of different songs. Crowd would go wild. It was more like a show. Like you would leave going, oh, my God, that was a phenomenal show. And he goes, be true to yourself. That's all that matters. And forget about what everybody else is, everybody else says, because the thing and I, I'll tell this last story on stand up. But we were doing I was doing the improv. It was comedy juice. I've only been doing comedy for three months. Mm hmm. I get booked on Comedy Juice, which, you know, is a huge show sure. uh, in L.A. And this was in its prime like nine years ago. I go on fourth. I do well. The last guy crushes, destroys the place. Joe Coy, me and Joe Coy walk out the club and he looks at me and goes, you had the best set tonight. I go, what are you talking about? He goes, I go, that last guy destroyed the place. He says, tell me the last guy's name. I was like, I don't know. Tell me something about him. I don't know. He's funny. He's like, yeah. And everybody leaving is going to go, that last guy was hilarious and forget about him. But you, I found out about your mom, your dad. I have a personal connection with you. And stand up, a lot of stand ups blow up because of jokes, but they lose it because people don't like them. And I feel stand up for me, this is for me, is I want to be a real life sitcom to people when I'm up there. I want people to know my life. So you've heard my first special ends when my kid is like eight months old, right? Now, the next one, they're going to lay up. He's three. This is the new season of your life. Of my life. And right. that's how I'm approaching stand-up. That's not, I need a I need a joke. I need a Mr. Miyagi in my life. You, that sounds, yeah, that sounds just, great. My thing is you got to have a mission in stand-up. You can't just be like, I'm going to tell jokes. You know, you got to know where you want to go with it. I This is the way I've always thought things out. Even when I got into stand-up. Yeah. I got into stand-up because Chelsea challenged me to do it mm-hmm. on her show because I on our show with all comedians, I wasn't a comedian, and I said, it doesn't look that hard to do. You just go up there and tell stories. And so I went up there, they challenged me, and I did 15 minutes my first time ever. I, and I, I fell in love with it. I walked off stage and said, I was born to do this. And I just love staying up so much because you can tell your own story. It's the only place in Hollywood where you get no's all the time. You can go to a casting, and they'll be like, no, you're not right for the part. And it gives you this confidence to be like, oh, I'm right. You just don't realize it. I'm going to go to the comedy store and crush in front of 400 people and get my validation that, okay, I'm doing something right. Yeah, you don't need the gatekeepers when you're exactly. going directly to the exactly. audience. Absolutely. So real quick, on the special is called um, Blasian. I'm raising a half-Asian kid myself. Congratulations. Thank you. How is it? <laughs> I don't know. I like them better than my kids that are 100% white. That, good. That's yeah, yeah, yeah. the right answer. I don't even talk to them anymore since I got you. this guy. Yeah, wow. He's the total package. Who's rubbing off on him more? The mother or Oh, my you? God. Uh, the, he, is, he, he already wants to move to Japan. 
he's already openly disdainful of the United States. And this is not something that anybody... Wait, how old is he? Six? Oh, going to be seven. See... This isn't something anybody put on him. And see, I this mean, is, unless they're saying shit behind my back. They probably are. <laughs> uh, so it's a thing where I wish when I was growing up my mom could teach me about Korean culture. Yeah. But it, growing up in Houston, it was very racist, the, the parts I lived in. And people would literally grab their eyes and squint them back. And, and that's what she saw. And so she did, She wanted me to be Americanized as possible. Keep a so low profile. Low profile, don't have an accent. So now I love that mothers that are different ethnicities are teaching their kids. Because yeah. now it's cool yeah. to know two, three languages. Well, it know? is. And it's and he is bilingual. And it's like, a, it's a, what, make new friends, keep the old? Yeah, absolutely. It's like he's, I mean, he knows the words to Tarzan Boy. He's fully fucking American. He's just Japanese, too. It's beautiful. I have I to let it. you go. You have to get yeah. to one of your many jobs. Thank you so much, Michael Yo. We should do this again sometime. Yeah, absolutely. I loved it, man. Uh, you are at Michael Yo? At Michael Yo on everything. Go to my website, michaelyo.com, and order my special, please, and give it five stars. Yeah, Blasian out on November 27th. Thank you, friend. Thank you.